In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the Politically Georgia podcast, where we bring you news and analysis of all the latest shenanigans in Congress and at the Gold Dome. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, and today I'm joined by our Washington correspondent, Tamar Hallerman, who darted off the beaten path this week and headed to the Midwest to follow a familiar Georgia figure. Hey, Tamar. Hi, greetings from suburban Ohio. I'm so jealous right now. Um, Well, let's dive deeper uh, to your visit later in the show. But first, let's chat about all the races we've got on our plates over the next two months. Uh, We're less than two months now from the primaries on May 22nd. It's about to get a lot more hectic. Campaigns are raising tons of cash, more than $20 million in the governor's race alone, and starting to spend it at an accelerated pace. Tamar, what do you expect to see over the next few weeks? Sure. The last few weeks, it's been kind of a lot of just kind of feeling out the situation, kind of all the candidates looking around, seeing what other people are raising, trying to figure out where they stand. And now is when you're right, we're going to start seeing ads on television, on the radio. You're going to start seeing a few more debates and candidate forums, perhaps a little bit more, you know, actual policy debates. Um, and, And maybe we'll see a little bit more action. It feels like the last few weeks, people are just fundraising and trying to get those resources in the bank. Yeah, this is kind of when the marathon becomes the sprint, especially in Georgia after the legislative session ends. It kind of springs the candidates free to go campaign in earnest. Most of the candidates already resigned their seats in um, in state office, but several of them, three of the gubernatorial candidates in particular, Secretary of State Kemp, Lieutenant Governor Cagle, and State Senator Michael Williams, were all kind of around the Capitol all session, especially for, for, for Williams and Cagle. And you know now we're starting to see more ads. Pretty much all of the gubernatorial candidates, except for Michael Williams and Stacey Abrams, have now launched their own TV ads. So that's the airwaves are a lot about to get a lot more cluttered. Exactly. And I'm starting to see schedules of candidate forums and stuff. And the pace is really starting to pick up. It's getting a lot harder to keep track of everything and everyone. I had the chance to moderate a Republican debate the other day, and it was a really uh, it was a really cool setup. They had all seven of the Republican candidates on a stage up in a flowery branch, and a couple hundred people in the audience. And my back was behind uh, my back. I was facing the candidates, and my back uh, the audience was to my back, and uh, we were able to ask eight, nine, you know, questions to all seven candidates and get them in rapid fire on some of the biggest issues. But we're starting to see a lot more of that as well. Oh, the Atlanta Press Club debates are coming up and they're going to have all the all the candidates, not just the gubernatorial candidates, but all the candidates for for uh, for state office and for and for most of the congressional races uh, do do debates there as well. 
And as a journalist, stuff like that is so great to cover because what's been so frustrating about this initial stage of the campaign is that all of the candidates are kind of in their own little bubbles, right? They're kind of talking to their supporters. They're, they maybe are doing meet and greets kind of on their own, but it's great to see them engage so you can kind of contrast, first of all, where they are on particular issues, but also kind of how they handle themselves under pressure and when they're facing their opponents. It's kind of neat to see. And I think that's where you can tell who are the pros who are kind of amateurs, um, who kind of has a real chance here. I'm with you there, especially when you see them uh, not just under duress from from us as reporters, because we get the chance sometimes to see them at town halls and, and events over the last few years, but also from their opponents. And at the, at the latest rounds of Republican debates, uh, we've seen the candidates kind of go after each other. Uh, most of the most of the formats are not for uh, you know, don't allow the candidates to directly question each other, but you're still seeing them hit each other over religious liberty, over illegal immigration, over votes in the state legislature, over medical marijuana. All those issues are already playing out big, at least in this governor's race. And unfortunately, with some of the congressional races, you know, it really is more kind of a primary mindset right now. Sure, some of the challengers are, are you know, levying some attacks against um, the incumbents, but mostly they're trying to um, kind of distinguish themselves among the, the colleagues on their side of the aisle. So I'm really looking forward to them being able to confront the incumbents so we can start seeing more contrasts in that way. Well, let's talk about some of those races. Uh, there are uh, you know, 14 congressional races in Georgia this year, but there's only a few really, truly competitive ones, right? Exactly. The the main two that we're following are both in suburban Atlanta. The 6th District, which, of course, um, was the subject of this massive, massive congressional uh, special election last year to replace Tom Price. And also there, there's the district, the 7th District, a few miles to the east, uh, where Rob Woodall has had, held his seat since 2010 without much competition until this year. And let's give the, the listeners a sort of an audio picture of those districts. The 6th spans from north to Cab County, all the way through North Fulton and into East Cobb, while the 7th is mostly is, is most of Gwinnett County and then a very conservative part of, of South Forsyth County. So the 6th District has been sort of establishment Republican for a long time, um, you know, solidly Republican district for years. Newt Gingrich once uh, – no, Johnny Isaacson once held the seat. Both of them, yeah. Newt Gingrich once held the seat. You're right. My memory is fading. Uh, Tom Price once held that seat as well. The 7th District has also been pretty solidly conservative, but Gwinnett itself is becoming much, much more diverse. Um, and at the same time, South Forsyth, you know, which is the sort of Republican uh, uh, counterbalance to that state, the very deeply Republican balance of that state, um, you know, there, there, there aren't as many people there as Gwinnett gets to be, uh, gets to be more populous. And for years, Democrats didn't really compete in either of those districts. They kind of assumed, you know, safely Republican, let's focus elsewhere. But the election of Trump in particular, um, you know, these are districts that went for Romney by double digits in 2012. But when it came to Trump, um, you know, these are wealthy suburban voters overall, well-educated um, you know, a lot of them commute into metro or into downtown Atlanta for corporate jobs and stuff. A lot of them were really turned off by Trump. So, so Trump only won those districts by um, by less than ten points. And I believe in the case of the sixth, it was only by one or two percentage points. Yeah, it was about a point and a half. Exactly. So Democrats are starting to look around thinking, oh, well, we won this special election in Pennsylvania a few weeks ago and and Trump won by a bigger margin than they did in um, than he did in the sixth. Let's go there. Um, so so people are kind of looking around to see if any of these Democratic challengers are actually viable. 
And in this case of the sixth last year, we had 18 candidates overall run in that special election. And of course, it came down between John Ossoff and Karen Handel on the most expensive U.S. House contest in the nation's history. This year, the sixth, we have uh, no Republican challenger to, to Karen Handel's right, but we have a handful of Democratic challengers, right? Yeah. So we have four Democrats who who qualified for it for this race. Um the, the biggest surprise was this woman, Lucy McBath, and she, um, her son was killed in 2010, or sorry, 2012, um, over a dispute. You know, he was a teenager sitting in his car in Florida at a gas station playing loud music with his friends. A, a white guy came and they got into an argument. Anyways, killed, killed this woman's son. She's become very much a... Um, kind of a national figure for gun control. Um, she was running for a state house seat. Her name is Lucy McBath. She was running for a state house seat um, in Marietta, I believe. And that was the plan for a few months. And then the Parkland shooting happened. And I think she she was very dissatisfied what she saw out of Congress. And at the very last second, decided to qualify for this race. And so that's really kind of changed the landscape here. Otherwise, we have Bobby Cable. He's a former newscaster here in Atlanta. We have Kevin Abel, a, a businessman uh, who immigrated here from South Africa when he was a teenager. Um, so Macbeth's candidacy has really changed the landscape here. And do we expect her candidacy to make gun control an even larger, more prominent issue in this debate? Absolutely. Um, this is an issue she talks about all the time. Um, she, she's often on TV, on, on cable news, talking about what gun violence has meant for her family and what she would like to see. She's considered what was called a mother of the movement. Um, and certainly she's not shy about ta talking about those issues. So I would certainly expect it's going to be a, a really big part of her campaign. And, and I assume it's going to force a lot of other candidates to grapple with it as well. Karen Handel has mostly been wanting to talk about tax reform as the big issue. But uh, with what happened in Parkland, with McBath's candidacy, I'm sure she's going to get a ton more questions about gun control. And we've talked about this before, but there's a general democratic shift on the issue of gun control as well. Not so long ago, 10 years ago, Democrats used to run as NRA Democrats in Georgia. They used to proudly wield their NRA's badge of approval, A and B ratings. G Jason Carter, even four years ago, called himself an NRA Democrat and talked about how he supports gun expansion, gun rights. Now you're seeing a dr dramatic shift in the party. You've always had gun control advocates in the Georgia Democratic Party, but now you're seeing top-level candidates for governor, for Congress, for other races really be fierce advocates for more gun control restrictions. Exactly. And I think it's part of kind of the broader national shift. And this is across tons of congressional districts of, uh, you know, around the country where politics have just become more nationalized in every way. It used to be that most of these congressional races were really focused on local issues, but especially covering the sixth district special election last year, it felt like everything was about Trump. Everything was about what Congress was doing. It was far less about um, stuff the legislature was doing or the city government. It really just has become a more nationalized time in politics. You mentioned Kevin Abel, the South African immigrant who is running for the 6th District. Look next door in the 7th District, there's also a, a pair of uh, immigrants running for office too. H how do you see that, you know, the fact that there's there's folks from out of, uh, you know, Im immigrants running for office? How do you see that shaping these contests? Absolutely. Um, so our colleague Jeremy Redman actually looked into this for, for an upcoming story in the AJC, and he found that there are more than two dozen first-generations 
first-generation Americans running for office in Georgia this cycle. And a lot of them do say that um, their candidacies are, are kind of a reaction to Trump's policies on immigration. Um, so some of them, like Ethan Pham, he is a, uh, you know, him and his family fled Vietnam after his his dad was imprisoned for and he's running fighting, the 7th District, right? Yeah, running the 7th District. And so he was saying, I've already, you know, we, we escaped a, a dictator. He sees Donald Trump as kind of a dictator figure. And, and that's kind of very central to his campaign. Um, you know, he wants a pathway to citizenship for DACA recipients. He doesn't want a border wall. Um, he's very quick to talk about issues like that. There are others who are saying, yes, immigration is very much a part of what I care about, but I don't want to be seen as just kind of the immigrant candidate. They're, they're eager to talk about other things like healthcare, um, business, the economy, that sort of thing. Now, are the Republican incumbents in Congress making a uh, a, you know, a big deal out of illegal immigration crackdowns and proposals, or, or DACA, or any of those debates? Some of them are, but in general, and you know, I feel like we're seeing it a lot more in the gubernatorial race. But when it comes to a lot of these incumbent members of Congress, a lot of them are kind of trying to lay low a little bit. Um, you know, they, you know, all the Republican incumbents in Congress from Georgia, they all supported Donald Trump. And they are all very quick to tell you that they're supportive of what the president does in general. But I often found that, that especially when I start pushing them on specifics, do you, do you support this specific policy that Donald Trump is doing specifically really controversial ones, like what he did with DACA, um, proposal for the border wall. Sometimes people do get a little more squirmish about it. Um, but, but in general, they want to say they're supportive of what the president does, but, but they will try and make a little you know, space for themselves on, on some of these more contentious issues. I find in the governor's race, though, Greg, and you can speak to this more, that, that the Republican candidates are really eager to show that they're the toughest on, on immigrants. They are. And that, that sort of divide between state and federal races is fascinating to me because at the state race, it's it's sort of a race to the right when it comes to immigration crackdowns. Cagle is highlighting support for legislation that bans sanctuary cities and is ongoing sort of litigation, legal battle with Decatur over that issue. Kemp wants what he calls a quote, criminal alien database to track people in the country illegally who have committed crimes. And Williams wants every Georgia County to adopt a program that trains and authorizes local officers to carry out immigration enforcement. So you're seeing some very uh, conservative proposals when it comes to illegal immigration and the state level. And I think you're going to start seeing uh, as well down and down ticket races and for state legislative offices, candidates who see that as an issue resonating in the Republican primary to highlight that over the next six weeks. For sure. And I think maybe the difference is that for these members of Congress, they realize that one day they might actually have to vote on these proposals. Perhaps it's a little more real to them than somebody who's just running for a legislative seat who, yeah, you can talk about what you want Washington to do, but that's not something you're ever going to have to vote on. Yeah. And and as you mentioned earlier, too, these, these are candidates, these are incumbents that rarely, if ever, faced credible challengers who are now not just facing one or two, but in the case of Rob Woodall, there's a half dozen or so candidates, some on his right, mostly on his left, running against him. Uh, Karen Handel, uh, you know, who had who had a really heated election last year, but before that, when Tom Price was the incumbent, had basically token opposition for, for years. Uh, so, so these are now firmly competitive seats that are beginning to reshape Georgia's political landscape. 
Exactly. And not only are kind of the makeups and demographics of these districts kind of changing right before our eyes, but then you also have a very divisive commander in chief who has very, um, in the case of immigration, really unorthodox policy proposals. Um, So what do you do if you're an incumbent trying to kind of weather the storm? Um, A lot of them were there before Donald Trump. Some of them might still be there uh, after four years or after eight years when he's gone. Um, you know, for longevity's sake, how do you position yourself in all of this? And we're still seeing the same sort of wave of women who who we, we reported earlier this year that a record number of women were running for, for state legislative seats. But there's a tremendous amount of number of women running for, for congressional seats as well. You mentioned Lucy McBath. There's several female candidates running in the 7th District and, and elsewhere around the state, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, as you mentioned, a a record number of women, and that's true nationally as well. Um, So it'll be interesting to see how much people want to capitalize on that issue. I find that as a millennial, um, it's less of a big deal now, I guess, as it was, um, you know, to even my parents' generation or even 20 years ago. Um, And and at least I'm noticing so far in a lot of these races, people aren't talking about gender as much. Um, so I'll be interested to see if anybody kind of wants to to talk about that on the trail, especially you have Karen Handel. She's the first Republican woman to serve in the House from Georgia. Um, and she hasn't really been wanting to talk about that so much. So I wonder if we'll see that from her challengers as well. Yeah, often when she's asked about that, and she, and she is, not only is she the first Republican woman in the U.S. House in Georgia, but she's also the highest ranking female politician in Georgia today. Um you know, and that could change in the governor's race because two uh, a, a woman will be at the top of the ticket for the Democrats no matter what happens in May. Um, but right now, Karen Handel is is that in that prime role. Um, and you're right; she she's sort of uh, she's she's not she's not emphasizing it at every campaign stop. Yeah, for sure. And and part of that is the kind of Republican aversion to identity politics in that way. I think a lot of people were very uncomfortable when Hillary Clinton would sometimes talk about that. Um, but in general, I'm not seeing it out of a, a lot of the other Democratic challengers in, in some of these other congressional races. Who knows if that changes? Um, but it's interesting. People aren't really talking about it right now. I think that uh, all these all these new challenges, all this comp- these suddenly competitive districts that weren't competitive for not just a few years, but for decades, has also really impacted the goings-on at, at the State House. I mean, look, this past session that we just ended, Georgia lawmakers uh, struck accords on adoption, on mass transit, on tax cuts. They largely steered clear of wading into crackdowns on immigration, on legislation that critics saw as discriminatory towards LGBT community. Things like that, that that usually you know were so divisive in the past. There was uh, there was a compromise or consensus over a lot of those issues that stalled in, in, la- in past years. I think part of the reason is the number of Republicans who are worried about you know not having much to run on to be able to now go to the campaign trail and say we cut taxes, uh, we we struck an gr- agreement on mass transit, um, we steered clear of some of these divisive issues. So I think that's going to really impact uh, the primary as well. One thing I'm going to be really interested to see, obviously, there's been this surge of civic activism uh, among liberals after Trump got elected. Clearly, there's so much energy. I wonder if that if they can keep that up long term. Um, that was one of the trends we noticed uh, on when qualifying closed, Greg. I mean, we saw, you know, in 2016 out of um, all the state house districts, I believe that Democrats only ran candidates in 80 of 180 counties. This year we saw 121 candidates um, in, in 180. I mean, that's a huge difference. But can you keep up that anger? 
um, in year two and year three and year four of a, a Trump presidency. And can you channel it into electoral uh, activity, right? I mean, that was that was sort of the six districts uh, lesson. If there was, if there were many, was that as for all the angst and outrage from Democrats who wanted to turn John Ossoff into a statement about Donald Trump and who poured unprecedented amounts of money into his campaign. I mean, he ended up raising thirty million dollars alone, and that's beside the the outside money that came pouring into the to the campaign. Um, it still ended up at a four-point defeat from him to Karen Handel. So if that that was an, an early test, and it wasn't a good one for Democrats. Uh, but of course, later on, they ended up winning the Pennsylvania special district, special house election uh, just a few weeks ago, and the big prize, uh, the Senate seat in Alabama, a very conservative state that Trump won by you know, more than 20 points uh, that now has a Democratic U.S. senator. It's interesting reading stories about groups who train people to run for office, like like Emily's List, uh, some, some smaller groups as well. Half the challenge is getting people to agree to run in the first place. And clearly, they're doing very well at that this cycle. But finding quality candidates who can run a professional campaign and, and who can actually truly challenge some of these incumbents who, as we know, are really well financed, really well connected. Um, to find a candidate that's truly viable, that's a real test. So it's going to be really interesting to see, especially in the seventh district, uh, Rob Woodall has seven challengers. How many of them are actually going to be viable candidates who, who can debate well, who have money, who can fundraise, who can make connections? That's going to be the real struggle. And I think that's where Rob Woodall, the incumbent, has a real advantage. Now, you spent the last few days in Ohio and Michigan with someone who really does know the ins and outs of Georgia politics. Tell us about uh, your experience traveling with Secretary Sonny. Yeah, Secretary Sonny. I was with him on an RV tour as he, he went through the Midwest. This is his third RV tour that he's done since he's become Secretary of Agriculture last year. And he'll he'll hit the road for three or four stops a day meeting with farmers or um, students in local ag schools, um, farm bureaus, chambers of commerce. And, and he'll just kind of tour around to ask people what they care about and why. He sees it as his way to kind of connect with the ag community around the country, get out of, of Washington um, and, and kind of figure out what people really want. Um, so I toured with him at a uh, tomato greenhouse in, in southern Michigan. I, we went to a plant nursery in Ohio. We, uh, we went to a uh, Ohio uh, Chamber of Commerce event um, with farmers, too, to talk about what they wanted to see. Um, and it, it's interesting. I, I find that the issues that, that people were bringing up with him kind of fell into three broader buckets that, that kind of summarize kind of the big controversial issues that, that Sonny has to deal with with his boss, Donald Trump. People were really super concerned about trade and, and tariffs, obviously kind of the big news of the day. Um, they were super concerned about government regulations, which is something Trump has really highlighted, um, and also about immigration. So kind of these three huge issues um, that come up again and again and again. And how is he kind of navigating those issues? Because he was an early supporter of Donald Trump, but uh, you know they, they're not—they uh, weren't necessarily besties. How does he kind of uh, walk that line? He very much sees himself, and his staff will tell you this too, as kind of a, a conduit between the farm community and the president. Um, so he he kind of wants to go back and forth and kind of communicate what people want. Um, what I'm interested in is obviously when it comes to issues like trade, 
and tariffs and immigration. What the farm community wants is in, in many ways kind of different from some of the harder lines Trump has taken with people. And there's, there's a ton of anxiety about Trump potentially starting a trade war with China or renegotiating NAFTA. Farmers rely on that a lot, on, on international trade, being able to export their, their crops. And so they're super freaked out. And, and Sonny sees his role as being able to call up the president and say, hey, people are really freaked out. They really need stability. Um, what I wonder is if he's in kind of a losing battle with the president. You know, his staff contends that's not true. The president's listening to what Sonny has to say. But, um, you know, in, in general, there's a lot of subtleties here. And for the president, it seems like all of this is very black and white. And we also know he, he, I mean, he's wielded his influence early, right? I mean, he was one of the, the vocal supporters of NAFTA early on when, uh, when the president was considering scrapping the entire agreement. And we heard reports that, 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 that Secretary Perdue kind of went at him with a PowerPoint presentation showing him how important NAFTA was to the agriculture community. Yeah, uh, you know, the reports I've seen is he literally came up to Trump with a map of the country saying, if you pull out of NAFTA, you're going to hurt this part of the country. These are the people who supported you in 2016. That's not a good idea. And it seemed to work. Um, Trump kind of pumped the brakes on on exiting NAFTA. At the same time, you're seeing some of the actions this week on, on tariffs against China, and people are freaking out about it. In Ohio, for example, one of the biggest exports, soybeans. And, and the Chinese just announced they're going to levy a 25% tariff on American soybeans. Uh, Sonny's message to the crowd yesterday when I was with him in, in Lima, Ohio, was that you know, this is not final. This is just an opening salvo. Trump is a master negotiator, and this is just the, the first move in this, this broader chess game. There's still time to negotiate this and iron out the kinks. Um, but people were truly, truly freaked out, and, and you could really see that. Now, Sonny Perdue has never really been a um, Washington figure. He was a state senator. He was a governor. He was a businessman here. He, he's never served in Washington until until now. Did, did he seem really comfortable getting out of Washington, back out on the campaign trail of sorts, you know, just out with regular voters um, and away from, from D.C.? Yes, very much so. He was very much known as, as kind of a great retail politician when he was governor. And you can absolutely see that here um, in, in farm country, cracking jokes, asking questions, kind of listening to what these farmers really want to hear. And apparently this RV tour is kind of a new concept. Um, his predecessors didn't really do a, a ton of things like this. So you can see this is kind of old school Sunny Purdue on display. Well, we can't wait to read more about your adventure with Sunny in the AJC uh, later on in the next couple of days. Thank you, Tamar, for joining us today. And now here's James Salzer with my favorite part of the show, the phrase of the week. Create jobs. Create jobs is a lot like for the children, another phrase we used a few weeks back. One of the best ways for a legislator to pass a bill is to say it'll create jobs. The House Ways and Means Committee, the Senate Finance Committee, they've got loads of bills. And pretty much any time a legislator comes up and says, I want to give a special interest tax break to a company or an industry, it's to create jobs. Then they take it to the House and Senate. They tell people, 
it'll create jobs. Those kind of bills usually pass, and I'm not sure exactly how often the state actually goes back and finds out whether those tax bills actually did create jobs. But it's, it's, it's all pretty much a 100% winning argument of the legislature. Jobs, jobs, jobs. It seems like by now with all these special interest tax breaks, we'd be at full employment because that would be good for the children. And now for our lightning round, and we'll keep it real short, but this was really interesting. Uh, Republican Brian Kemp unloaded his harshest attack yet on Lieutenant Governor Casey Cagle in Georgia's governor's race. He wrote a letter to the National Rifle Association warning that it is, in his words, getting played in the race for governor. Uh, Cagle, of course, vowed to kill any legislation that would benefit Delta Airlines. But Kemp said that although the tax break on jet fuel exemption was indeed spiked earlier this year, Cagle quietly let through another piece of legislation that would benefit Delta because through a mass transit provision, they would exempt jet fuel from a local transportation tax. So basically he said that, yeah, Cagle uh, successfully killed a broad tax cut for Delta, but also let slip a much more minor one. Cagle said, Brian Kemp must be... uh, (laughs) must be tripping. His exact quote from campaign manager Scott Binkley is, the only way this helps Delta is if it lands a 747 in Gwinnett or Cobb County regional airports. Brian Kemp should go to one of them to save on his next purchase of jet fuel. He was sniffing before sending out that statement. So there we have it, folks. For more political stories, visit politicallygeorgia.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Bluestein and at AJC on Washington. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and rate us. And thank you, as always, for listening. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.